Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. This time we're jumping into Irish mythology with a look at the Fenian cycle. There was a well at the end of the world where only the god Necton was permitted. And in that well there lived a salmon, a quite normal fish, beautiful and graceful, but no more than any of its kind. Around the well grew nine hazel trees, which blossomed and fruited in a single day. And into the well each tree dropped a hazelnut. Nine beautiful crimson nuts in total found their way into the pool. But these were no ordinary trees, and these were no ordinary nuts. For contained within their small shells was all the knowledge of the world. What was, what had been, and what would come to be. And the salmon ate the hazelnuts, one by one. And it found that it knew. Everything. The horror, the beauty, the infinite universe stretching away. The salmon couldn't do much with this knowledge. It was simply a salmon. And on it swam. Now, the Fenian cycle is a far grander story than those I've told previously on the podcast. Epic in its scope, taking place across decades, across many lands, both on Earth and in the worlds of the gods, and featuring a huge host of characters in many different tales. I'm just telling a tiny sliver of it here, and I'll expand it in time, but just a warning, there are lots of names, and keeping track of them is a bit like memorising a telephone book, though telephone books themselves are kind of ancient legends these days, I think. Anyway... The island of this time was a wild and divided country. Ever-shifting alliances of clans fought one another for control over scraps of land. They formed competing kingdoms which at one time or another would claim sovereignty over the cattle herds, occasional strongholds and small cities that formed human habitation at the time. Outside these patches of firelight was the vast wilderness, the dark forests and the lonely crags. Outside of the world of civilization, the temptation of good hunting had to be balanced against the dangers of bands of brigands, and the far greater threat from the other folk. The Shi, the old gods, banished long ago to their world underneath the great mounds, but who still enter the human world with quite some regularity. This was a wild world of untamed magic and of endless warfare, fighting between clans, families and kingdoms, within families, clans and kingdoms, against great monsters and the Shi, and against invaders from over the seas. And Kuo knew fighting better than anyone. For many years, his shoulders had borne the responsibility of leader of the Fianna. The Fianna were a band of fighters, not quite an army in the sense we might understand it, but something close. A group of mostly men, but quite a few women, joined together from disparate, often hostile clans who worked as one to serve the High King, more or less. Though, as I mentioned before, things were complicated and there were many kings on the island of Ireland at the time, and beneath each of those, many others who claimed some title of kingship or lordship or clan leader, a muddle of monarchs. Now, Cool did not consider himself amongst their number, 
but with the Fianna under his command, his power eclipsed many of those petty kings. And in a recent turn of events, he begun to see himself as beholden only to himself. And it was because of these events that Cool had found himself here, with the Fianna split along the old clan lines. In Cool's mind he had never betrayed the High King, but rather the High King had betrayed him. He looked out at bristling spears held aloft by some of his former brothers-in-arms, men he had formerly commanded, and he considered the events that brought him here. It was a woman, of course, the most achingly beautiful and wondrous woman who Cool had ever set eyes on. That she was so perhaps owed something to supernatural means, for the blood of the gods, the Tuadadanan, also known as the She, was said to run within her. Her name was Myrna, and her father was the powerful druid, Taig. And like so many other men, Cool had fallen in love and courted her, though he had a wife already. He was head of the Fianna. He reckoned he was in with more than a shot. The culture of marriage was a little different then than now, and the decision of who she would wed did not come down to Myrna. And just as he did with all his daughter's suitors, Taig denied Cool's request for Myrna's hand. Unlike all the other suitors, Cool wasn't about to take no for an answer. He was the head of the Fianna. And so Cool had abducted Myrna. What was the old druid going to do about it? And somewhere in his love and arrogance, Cool had miscalculated, because Tig could appeal to Con, Con the High King. And rather than siding with Cool, which might have been expected, Con, perhaps reluctantly, sided with Tig. However good a leader Cool might be, kidnapping young women, regardless of whether or not they might want to be kidnapped, which Myrna did, was not on. That path led to anarchy and chaos. And so Con gave his order. And so Con gave his order. Release Myrna or leave Ireland. Cool refused. Myrna was his, and by now she was pregnant. No one, not even the king, could tell Cool what to do now. To back down he would lose everything, and he had his clansmen and his loyal Fianna with him. But a powerful warrior makes powerful enemies, and into the growing feud between Con and Tig on one hand, and Cool on the other, came Clan Morna. Now the men of Clan Morna were part of the Fianna, but their great leader A had been banished long ago. And to Cool's surprise and rage, it was to A that Con turned, pardoning him and bringing him back to Ireland and in so doing, splitting the loyalties of the Fianna, and presenting Cool with an old, skilled enemy, well-versed in the arts of violence and warfare. And in the past months, Khan and his armies, led by A, had hunted Cool here, to knock. Myrna, with Cool's child inside her, was now far away, both in body and in Cool's thoughts. Now this was between him and his people, and Clan Mourner. At his side were his loyal warriors, his brother, Krivnor, his clanman, looked, the formidable warrior woman, Leah Lucra, and behind them, all his armies. Today would be a great day for Cool. And so, with a tremendous roar, a clanging of metal, a banging of spears on shields, battle commenced. For both sides, the leader of the other was the key target. And so, through the din and heat of battle, the commanders of both forces fought their way to each other. 
and in the midst of that battlefield they and their most elite warriors met in a violent clash, the very best of A's people against the best of Cool's. For Cool, things started really well when, with a skillful stroke of his spear, Lucht struck A square in the face, taking out one of his eyes. But the feeling of rejoicing quickly turned to horror as A, blood still pouring from the huge gash in his face, failed to do the decent thing and fall down dead, or at the very least screaming, but instead struck back immediately at Lucht, running him through with his own spear. The surprised man tried to speak, coughed up blood, and then collapsed. Things turned even worse when a shocked Cool suddenly found himself cut off, surrounded by Clan Mourner's best warriors. Each one had been promised that whoever got the first strike would be given great rewards. Sixteen men in all surrounded Cool, and the blows from their spears began. The last thing that Cool would ever see was one-eyed A grinning victoriously and raising his spear. With Cool's death, it was all over. Any chance of his marriage was over. And those of his warriors who remained had nothing left to fight for. And some in haste, some in good order, they beat their retreat. From that day onwards, because of his injury, A. McMorner became known as the One-Eyed, or Gull. But this slight was worth it, and soon he grew into the name and title. Gull McMorner leader of the Fianna. And let's cut to Myrna, accompanied by a few loyal servants of Cool and heavily pregnant with the child of a man now dead. It is unclear how much this young woman had been swept along by Cool's power or if she was genuinely in love with him. But his death made all of this an irrelevancy. The wrath of her father had ended Cool's life and it seemed as though it would soon end hers. For following the battle, the vengeful man had called for her, his own daughter, to be burnt alive for her betrayal. At this point, we can assume he'd definitely given up on that ever-coveted All-Ireland Father of the Year award. Some small respite had come for Myrna, as Con, the High King, had heard of Teague's plans and was aghast. Cool was dead. This was over. Anything more could not be allowed. He forbid any more violence towards Myrna. But this still left a problem. The son yet to be born. Now you might quite reasonably describe any man who designs to kill a baby as a monster. And I would not argue with you. What harm can an innocent child do? But in the mind of Gull McMorner, there was a kind of logic. Leaving alive the son of your greatest foe who you murdered just before that son's birth, after stealing said father's position and title, and when said son's parentage was semi-divine, making him some kind of demigod, it sounded exactly like the kind of scenario that would have seers and prophets the ancient world over face-palming in collective despair at how you were practically begging for a bloody vengeance-filled revenge quest to be waged against you. And so whatever the case for Myrna, the newly named Gull was very much determined that the boy was not going to be allowed to live. Now, luckily, Myrna and those of Cool's allies who were protecting her knew of Gull's intentions. And they had a plan. It was not a plan that would be easy for Myrna. In fact, for the new mother, it would be heart-wrenchingly difficult. 
but better this than the alternative. So on the very day when Myrna brought a child into the world, she would also say goodbye to him. Her labour came at the house of a close ally of Cool, and with her were two women, her sister, the druid Beaumont, and Leah Lucra, who had fought with Cool at the Battle of Nock. It was to these two that Myrna gave up the newborn, knowing that they could protect him in a way that she could not. The parting was ever so hard for Myrna, but I like to imagine that Gull and Teague's men arrive at the house not long after the birth, being greeted by an exhausted, tear-streaked Myrna, who nevertheless manages a triumphant smile when asked, Where's the baby? And answering in mock innocence, Baby? What baby? So there is a lot to keep track of here, so let's have a brief recap of the important stuff. Cool, leader of the Fianna, who are a group of fighting men loyal to the High King of Ireland, the High King being called Con, has abducted slash eloped with Myrna, daughter of the druid and descendants of the old gods, Teague. Teague is very pissed off about this and convinces Con to declare war against Cool. This effectively causes a civil war within the Fianna. Clan Mourner, who had been out of favour with the king, seized this opportunity to get back in his good graces. After Clan Mourner defeat Cool in battle, their leader, who did have another name but let's just forget it now, their leader Gull, which means one-eyed, a reference to the injury he sustained in that very battle, becomes the new head of the Fianna. Shortly after this, Myrna gives birth to Cool's son. And while King Con, yes, King Con, I'm not going to go there, it's too obvious, absolutely promise, King Con says that Myrna is not to be harmed, despite the wishes of her psychopathic father, who'd much prefer to see her burned. But no such protection is extended to her son, the boy, whose name by the way is Demna, but spoiler alert will later become known as Fion, is under the protection of two women, a druid, Bomul, and a warrior, Leah Lucra. And that's the recap! It's a few years later, and the young Demna is climbing a tree. Climbing trees was something that Demna did a lot of, and he was rather good at it. There wasn't a whole amount to do in the forest for a young boy, and the forest was the only place that Demna had ever known. For it was deep into the dark woods that his two guardians had taken him, and raised him secretly in a small, remote place. According to some, it was a little hunting cabin. Others said it was a hollow in an ivy-clad tree. Wherever it was, Demna knew the look of the trees, the scent of the flowers, the calls of the birds and the tracks of the animals. He knew of the different seasons and the subtle changes in the feel of the air that indicated when there would be rain. And he was especially good at climbing trees. He would never climb any tree more than once, but instead look for a taller one and try that, ever pressing forward, ever improving, just as he had been taught. For that was the way that Beaumal and Leah Lucra had raised him. Every day since he could walk, they had imparted their knowledge to him. Knowledge of fighting, of the natural world, of the physical skills he would need. Leolucra would spar with him, giving him a thorny branch, and then she'd chase him around a tree with a switch of her own, each trying to hit the other. To teach him to swim, they'd cast the terrified child into the water and let him figure his own way out. 
They taught him to be swift on his feet, hunting hares in the field with his bare hands. And from the earliest age, they raised the boy on a diet that would be the envy of every protein shake swigging gym enthusiast. The best, richest meat from the wild swine that frequented the woods. But for all Demnon knew of the forest, he did not know much of the outside world, of other people and their ways. In these early years, his was a small world. And what he did know of the land outside it was filled with the monstrous people who had killed his father. The women would tell him of the evils of Gaul and Teague, and especially of Clan Morna. Clan Morna, who he was taught never stopped looking for him, a terrifying, omnipresent, evil, lurking force, always just beyond Demna's vision. Now, I don't mean to suggest by this that the dangers facing the young boy weren't real. They very much were. While Con's decree about Myrna kept her safe, Gull was still hunting for Cool's child. He had to do so somewhat clandestinely, as knowledge of the child's survival was not widespread. But as long as Demne might be alive, he was a threat to the legitimacy of Gull's leadership of the Fiena. As for Myrna, I'm happy to report that things for her had actually improved somewhat. After the tragic events leading up to the birth of her child, being torn between Cool and her father, after a few years, she recovered somewhat, and the great beauty found a husband of her own choosing. He was the King of Kerry, and though he knew of her past and of Demna, he was kind and loving to her, and soon she found herself pregnant again. And in so becoming, she was flooded with memories of the child she had left behind, and she found herself needing to see him. One last time. And so a pregnant Myrna took a long and circuitous route through the wilderness, making absolutely sure she was not being followed. And eventually, after many days of travelling, she found the small family. Demna was asleep after a busy day of climbing trees. Myrna hugged the sleeping child tightly and whispered her hopes and dreams for him. And profusely she gave her thanks to Bomal and Lucra for taking charge of the boy and raising him to be such a fighter. And then she left on the long journey again, all without Demno ever waking. But perhaps when he did wake, he had some vague memory of her words. And his mother's scent faintly lingered. As a bit of an aside here, the relationship between Bomal and Lealucra is never particularly explored. But given they were living together and alone, except for the boy, I don't think it's unreasonable to believe that some form of deep, possibly even romantic relationship could well have existed between them. In any case, it's kind of heartening to hear that one of the foremost figures of Irish mythology was raised by two mums, and he was raised very well by them. If by well you mean raised as an efficient murder machine, perfectly tuned to dish out violent vengeance and bloody revenge. And in this case, that is definitely what well means. So an unquestionable victory for the principle of same-sex parenting right there. Over time, Demner grew stronger and faster and developed the abilities of a hunter, though sometimes a bit of an unconventional one. His first successful hunt was of a duck. Seeing a group on the lake, he threw a spear such that it cut the feathers and wings off of one. It's said that this caused a trance to fall on the bird, but massive shock and trauma seems a more likely cause of it just kind of sitting there. In either case, he could easily then retrieve the wounded animal and cook it up for supper. Later on, his skills would expand even more, and still not doing things in the usual manner, he would run after herds of fully grown stags and drag the animals to his little home. 
When he butchered them, he would sometimes imagine them to be the warriors of Clan Mourner, their deaths his retribution. And living such a life, Demna grew. He was strong and fair-haired, and we were told he was beautiful. It was at the age that we might now call his teenage years that his guardians decided it was time for him to take his first steps into a social world. It was a difficult balance to strike between the risk of discovery that would come with letting Demna away and the necessity of him developing the skills of interacting with, well, anyone outside of the unusual family of super-effective hunter-gatherers. So Demna's first foray into the great wide world came suddenly one day. Bomol took him away from that place in the woods and they took a small journey to a stronghold, a fortress. It was a time of year when the local youths got together to show off their skills against one another. There was general parading around, working out who was best, and winning all that prestige and bragging rights, which you get when you're really good at sports. I have no idea what this consists of, but it's probably quite nice. Outside the fortress on the green, these games were in full swing. I don't think they were particularly carefully refereed, and there was a definite no-holds-barred element to this thing. I can't really conceive how strange it must have been for Demne to see so many new people all at once, a widening up of a narrow world into one of infinite possibility. But this gave no fear to the young lad, for indeed the situation he came upon was one where his unusual and single-minded upbringing provided a great advantage. Bomal had the good grace to leave him to it rather than playing the role of embarrassing parent, shouting incoherently from the sidelines like at a kid's Sunday football match. Demne rocked on up and just started joining in. The others didn't know him, but that was no barrier. At first, it was running, and being the only one there who was used to running down deer, Demne beat them all, easily. They were shocked. Then they turned to hurling, which is an incredibly ancient Irish sport that crops up in a load of legends. Forgive me for getting a little technical, but the game mostly consists of hitting a ball with a stick and generally being really quite violent while doing so. I don't know if Demner knew the rules better than me, hopefully, but he certainly seemed to get the hang of it fast. His team was winning far too easily, and he was the one doing all the work. In increasing desperation, the boys played larger and larger teams against him, but however many of them there were, he would always win. Events culminated with the other boys, who hadn't been expecting to be shown up by some odd, uncommunicative stranger, throwing their sticks at Demner in anger and frustration. Rather than this subduing him, Demner merely set about his attackers, throwing most of them to the floor in his own anger. All in all, this little sortie into the wider world was perhaps not proving the best way to win friends and influence people. However, for proving that he had what it takes to be an avenging hero, it was perfect. Later, when he had left, the angry and embarrassed boys went whinging to the chief of the fortress. He took a no-nonsense and ruthless approach to their predicament. If you don't like this guy, why don't you just go and kill him? As I said, it was a different time. Parenting advice was just... it was just of its time. Anyway, when the chief offered this simple solution, the assembled boys refused to meet his eyes. They looked down, looked at each other. Their faces burned. Eventually one of them mumbled. He's too good. We can't do anything to him. And the chief roared with laughter. What's this lad's name anyway? But the boys didn't know. And because of his hair, they called him only the Fair One. Or Fion. And that was the way that Demner became known as Fion. And so from now on we'll be calling him Fion. You can forget about Demner 
It was his name, but now he is very much called Theon, and will be for many, many years to come. So let's go with that. This little episode of finally getting his actual name complete, he returned home to Beaumont. He would venture occasionally on a few more mini-adventures, challenging those youths of the stronghold again, this time at swimming, which went really badly for them, and boosted the reputation of the mysterious Fion even more. Another time, in quite a strange episode, he shacked up with a bunch of travelling poets, who were in turn murdered by a robber. Rather than avenging them, Fion took to living with the robber in his marshland home, until Beaumol and Lucra came to get him back. I suppose every young person goes through phases. But eventually the day came when Fion would have to leave for good. Not only was he reaching the age when he would be expected to make a name for himself, but in recent months the forest where they hid was getting ever busier. The fame that Fion was bringing was attracting attention, and some suspicions were being aroused in the very best men of Clan Mourner. Were Fion to be discovered with Bomal and Lealucra, known allies of his father, his identity as Cool's son would almost certainly be guessed at. Now he was able to cope in the world, it would be safer to send him out to live amongst others anonymously. And from then he could work out an ultimate route to the vengeance he had been raised to seek. It must have been a day of such mixed emotions for all of them. The deep sadness of parting from the only parents he'd ever known, and the forest that had sustained him for so long. But also the promise of a glorious future amongst the kings of the land, and the nearing of the time when he would claim his birthright. I cannot imagine Fionn or either of the women weeping. A hug, a nod of acknowledgement perhaps, a wishing of luck, and maybe some last bit of advice for the journey ahead. And they bid him farewell, and Fionn went out into the world. To Loch Lane he went, and went to take service with the King of Bantry, a former ally of his father. Fionn became a hunter, and for a while all was well. Fionn learned much more of the ways of the world from those he worked with, and began to ingratiate himself into society. But subtlety, restraint, and even a little common sense did not seem to be traits the young Fionn was much endowed with. And because of that it soon became evident to all that the man was a great hunter. The greatest in the king's retinue, in fact. And so quickly did his reputation grow, that Fionn soon found himself in an audience with the king of Bantry himself. The king took one look at Fionn, with his long, fair hair and his very clear familial resemblance, and said, Now I have never heard of Cool having a son. But if he had, then you would be him. Another word was not needed. If the King of Bantry could work it out, then the men of Clan Morna, who frequented the court, would soon do the same. First plate he tried down, but that didn't dissuade him. He set off again, this time perhaps with more of a determination to adopt a covert attitude. He soon found himself in the service of the King of Kerry, but once again he failed spectacularly at not being incredibly awesome at everything. So it was not too long before he found himself playing fickle with the King himself. Fickle is an old Irish board game, a bit like chess. Now, where he learned to play this I do not know. Perhaps Bodle and Lucra were keen players and had a set in the forest. But he must have learned somewhere and learned well, for he won all seven games, 
which seems a little bit unnecessary, even if he was very good. After five or so, it just might have been politic to let the king have a victory. But as we've learned, that was not the way that Fionn was built. And so, after seven games, the king of Kerry turned to him. So, lad, where do you say you come from again? A peasant family from Tara, yes? Uh, that's right, said Fionn looking the king straight in the eye and holding himself with a most noble bearing after his seventh crushing victory. The king sighed and rolled his eyes. You are the son of Cool. Fionn was downcast. Somehow his cunning ruse had been undermined yet again. And that means that you are the son of my wife. Fionn raised his eyes to the king in astonishment. He had not known. No one in the king's service would ever see the queen or the women of the court. His heart leapt. The king caught the look in the boy's eyes. No, no, you cannot stay here. You'll bring a great danger down upon this house. For if you are discovered here or that you have even been here, then Gull's people will slay not only you, but surely your mother also. She must not know of this. The fewer people who do, the better. And though he hated it, Fionn could see that the king was right. His mother may not have married the bravest of men, nor the best board game player, but neither had she married a stupid man. What's your plan, lad? said the king. And Fionn kind of shrugged. Look, there is one thing I can do for you. Not everyone who fought with your father went on to serve Gull. Your uncle, Krivnal, he took some of the men and went deep into the forest, hiding. I don't know where exactly, but I can tell you roughly. Perhaps you'll have some luck finding them, if Clan Mourner haven't got to them already. And so, Fionn set off once again. Though he had not seen his mother, he at least now knew that she was being cared for by a good man. The whole working for kings thing hadn't really worked out, and he didn't know whether this new approach would be any more successful. But he had to try. He had a destiny to fulfil and lots and lots of vengeance to meet out along the way. Now, this is the first time I've talked about Irish mythology on the podcast, so I'm just going to give a very brief overview of it. Irish mythology is generally considered to be stories that were written down in Irish concerned with Ireland. Irish was actually one of the most important uh, local languages in Europe in the early medieval period. So there are a huge number of tales, and for the sake of simplification, they tend to be grouped into four broad categories, which are known as cycles. These categories are rather for the sake of convenience and are far from immutable, with many characters and elements appearing in stories from all four, but it's a very standard way of grouping these tales and useful to help get an understanding of them. So the four cycles of Irish mythology are 1. The mythological cycle. This is concerned largely with the pre-human history of Ireland, by which I mean struggles between various races of beings, somewhat like gods or demons or ancestors or, well, often the she. At the end of that cycle, along come the humans. The second cycle is the Ulster cycle, heroic tales of the great warrior Cuchulain at their centre. Third is the Fenian cycle, from which today's story is drawn, and this is all about Fionn McCool and the Fianna. 
And fourth, we have the historical cycle, pseudo-historical tales of the lineages of Irish kings leading up to modern times, well, modern when they were written, and including many Christian elements. Though, of course, all of the written versions of these tales we have do come from Christian sources. Now, in time, I'd like to cover as many of these cycles as possible, but for now, the Fenian will take centre stage. The collections of stories that make it up are incredibly numerous and come from two different types of sources. One, written manuscripts, of which the earliest date to around the 900s, and which may well draw upon tales that are earlier still. And secondly, there is a very strong oral tradition of tales of the Fianna, which have been told down to almost the modern day, many of which were collected and written down in the 19th and 20th centuries. As a bit of an aside, unlike many of the other Irish tales, these tales of the Fianna also made their way into the oral tradition of Scotland, where there is a long folk tradition of them that is somewhat different from the Irish stories. Now, these Scottish tales of the Fianna were kind of collected, kind of, and translated into English and then substantially rewritten by one James Macpherson in the 1760s in a collection of poems that were known as the Ossian Cycle, featuring a character called Fingal rather than Fion. Macpherson's poems, which are quite different from the Fianna stories in Irish tradition, went on to inspire a huge range of historical figures, ranging from Napoleon to Thomas Jefferson, and are even said to have started the whole Romantic movement. However, they are also hugely controversial, with Macpherson being accused of outright forgery and invention. It's a fascinating topic, but only tangentially related to the stories here, but I definitely encourage you to look it up if you're at all interested in literary history. Anyway, back to the Fenian cycle proper, that of Irish mythology. The huge popularity of Fionn McCool and the Fianna over the last thousand years has led to a preponderance of these tales. And I'll quote directly from one Celtic scholar, Alan Bruford, who sums this up by saying, quote, The Fenian cycle is nothing like a single epic or even a consistent cycle of poems. It seems as though every member of the poetic cast from the 12th century to the 18th must have tried his hand at composing either a ballad or two or a prose tale about the Fenians, and where he had heard nothing he could use to fill in the gap, each one felt free to invent or at any rate adapt something for himself. So yeah, we've got a lot of variety. Now, academic arguments rage over the origins of the character of Fion himself. The stories of Fion seem to hark back to before the manuscript sources we have, back into a pre-Christian island. And there is some agreement, but only some, that the name Fion is quite likely to be a pre-Christian Celtic god or at least hero. But there's nothing on this we can say definitively, something I'll be saying quite a lot about Irish mythology and indeed tales before writing generally. However, in the stories we do have though, Fionn is very much immortal, but possibly semi-divine, and he's more like a king or a hero than any kind of god. Fionn is largely an all-Irish hero, though some aspects of his story take place in the province of Leinster. As I've said, the stories which we have were composed during a time when Ireland was Christian. Some of the key manuscripts were written down by monks, and some of the written Fenian tales have a very Christian framing narrative. For instance, one of the most famous collection of tales from the cycle, the Colloquy of the Ancients, is supposedly being told to St. Patrick by, minus spoiler out here, Fionn's son, who has, for a plot-relevant point, survived many hundreds of years after 
the rest of the Fianna are dead. Which is pretty cool, actually. But anyway, it's Christian, which is the idea. However, despite this Christianity, thematically, the tales of the Fianna cycle are usually fairly non-Christian and harking back to the values of an older pagan island. And despite the Christianization, many of the tales were composed in an island that looked somewhat similar to the country of the tales, not having one political form, but being split up and coming under the sway of various different foreign invaders and kings. And though the Fenian cycle may not have been a composite, coherent whole, certain themes certainly emerge, many of which see Fion as an early defender of Ireland, from foreign invaders on one side, and from the Shi or the Tuatha on the other, and those are themes that we'll see develop as we go through this cycle. Now, tales from the Fenian cycle have persisted into modern Irish culture quite strongly. Just to pick one example, one of the most famous 20th century Irish books, Finnegan's Wake, which I've not read as it's meant to be incredibly difficult, contains many allusions to the stories of Fion. The Irish landscape also has a deep connection to Fion and the Fianna, with a number of places said to owe their origins to characters in the tales, as well as place names that are mentioned in the tales still being visible today. I should mention that the Giant's Causeway is one place that's often said to owe its origin to Fionn McCool. It is one amongst a great many, however it's one of the most famous outside of Ireland. And the thing about that is that Fionn McCool in that story is very different from the Fionn McCool in what is considered the Fenian cycle. It's like a different character. It's a fairy story, pretty much, that is really not connected. So just treat that as if they're two separate things. Please don't think of Fionn as a giant because of whatever you might have heard about the Giant's Causeway. I might tell that story at some point on the podcast. It's an interesting story on its own, but not really related to this. So in summary, the stories of Fionn are a huge morass of fascinating tales drawn from at least one and a half thousand years and possibly much more. We've only just dipped our toe into this very first story and on the next episode we're going to continue the story of the boyhood of Fionn and see where his Tarantino-esque revenge quest takes him. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information, including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.